Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's a genuine delight to have my guest, Silke Ahrens, who is the channel chief for Phycotic. Silke, would you mind just giving a quick 90-second introduction to who you are and your history thus far? I'll do my very best and thank you very much for welcoming me on your podcast. I'm very excited to be here and I have to admit slightly nervous. This is uh, definitely a premiere for me of being on a podcast. So um, thank you for having me. You, you run uh, your own. What do you mean? <laughs> you're an old hand. You're a lag at this. That is probably true, but still... So yeah, uh, I'm at the moment I'm the channel chief or the the senior director of channels at Psychotic, and I have been at Psychotic for coming up to just two years. But I'll get to that I'm sure um, in a lot more detail in a little bit. So in terms of my history, so I've been uh, working in channels for the last fifteen years, and uh, it really came about as per chance. So originally I'm German and did this apprenticeship with the German local government. And I got to say, it was the most boring three years of my life by far. And uh, so I'm from this this very small town in the countryside. There's not a lot happening here. And uh, we do love our bureaucracy. Within those three years, all I could dream of was going to London. So as soon as I could, I upped the sticks and I moved to London when I was 19 years old. How my mother allowed me to do that, I do not know. I'm pretty sure I would not allow my daughter to do that. Anyway, so I went to London, needed to make some money, and uh, ended up working at Kingston Technology. And that's really how I got into IT. And they needed a German speaker who's got customer service experience. So at Kingston Technology, started working with distribution there. Back then, it was mainly broadliners. And then moved to... Polycom for half a year where they back then started to create what would nowadays be known as an SDR team in collaboration with Channel. It was a bit of a disaster, so moved on pretty quickly from there. And then I stayed at DFI Software for the next seven years. And that's really where I met um, a couple of very, very important mentors to me who gave me opportunities to just, you know, really learn more and try myself out in various different channel positions. It was where I learned how to work with the distribution side, so in distribution management, but also channel account management. And then finally, building my first channel inside sales team. And then following that stint where I lived in different parts of London, moved to the, to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam for a while and Vienna. Following that, I moved to Copenhagen to build a completely new channel team and a channel landscape for a company, a security company called, was called back then, now acquired, uh, Secunia. And that was very exciting because they were 100% direct sales. They had some very interesting uh, sales techniques going on. And uh, me and my mentor back then, who's still my boss today, we were brought in to basically move from 100% direct model to 100% channel model. And that was a fantastic learning curve for me. And then um, following that, the company got acquired by a company called Flexera Software, or nowadays, I think just Flexera, where I stayed the following two and a half years to also help them build up a channel team um, and a real channel structure. And from there on, you know, the the rest is history. I've been at Psychotic uh, ever since. So for the past two years, I'm very excited to be here. 
So let, let's dive in straight away to what are the four most common questions you get asked about selling through the channel? So one of the big questions that I tend to get asked is, why does the partner get X amount of discount? You know, and whether that's 5% or 50%, from a seller's perspective, very often it's always too much because they very often feel like the partner's not bringing anything to the table and they are doing all the work. And that is one of the most interesting parts, I think, of being a channel leader to bring those two perspectives together because it is really an ongoing educational system that needs to happen within every single company that has a channel, but also a direct touch model. Doesn't mean that the company is selling directly. So everything's still like a psychotic, everything 100% in the international space. So EMEA and APEC goes via channel partners. But we do have our direct sales force that works directly with the customer in combination with the partner. And you do have deals that originate within the vendor where the, the seller is basically owning 100% of the, the process and then is transacting it at the end via a partner. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's give and take. You have partners that bring you deal registrations or channel referrals and um, that are using their relationships to open doors for you. So it really is about looking not just on a deal-by-deal deal scenario, but it is that looking at the big picture, like what is making this company successful and where is the channel working with a seller? And if a, if a seller brings that question to me, one of my first answers back is not really an answer. It's, it's actually a question to the seller, which is, how are you working with the channel today? How are you working with partners? And what would your expectation be? Because I can probably lecture you for three hours about what the expectation of a partner to a vendor would be, and rightly so. But let me hear where are you so you can pick them up where they are, because I find that very important, the sort of almost the psychological component of that relationship. And, you know, I think that's also on a side note, where I really fell in love with working with a channel. So I'm a big romantic at heart. I believe everything is relationships and relationship-driven. And that's also the case when you build a successful channel. You know, you just like, you're hopefully not marrying the first person that walks through the door. You also shouldn't do that with a partner. So you, there is that qualification process in both hopefully marriage and, and partnership. Otherwise, it ends in a divorce pretty quickly. And a lot of the time, salespeople don't really understand the potential that that relationship can bring to the table. So it's really about making sure that they know what they can get out of that relationship and then bringing them into the fold rather than just, which is something that I hear peers do, do quite a lot, just saying, well, no, channel is amazing and you should love it. Well, but why should they love it? So it's, it's all about educating and explaining all the time, I find. So let's go with the other three uh, common questions before we delve mm -hmm. into that. Okay, so... The other really common question that I get, not just from sellers, but basically also a lot from, from management and so on is, why can't we have a really successful hybrid model? Why can't we have sales directly to the end customer, but also sales via channel partners and still have a super successful channel? And I wouldn't say that you can't have that per se. You can, of course, have whatever you want, but then you have to live with consequences. 
And using that romantic model, again, if a vendor decides, okay, we want to go with a hybrid model and we want to sell both ways, we want to have it, you know, all of the ways, then typically what will happen is that uh, a partner that may usually be super committed and very happy to work with you, invest in time and resources to know your product and to build that expertise, they're going to pretty quickly ask, well, how are you going to guarantee me that the deals that I'm bringing to the table to you, your sales guys are not going to call and close them direct. And unfortunately, they have a lot of evidence to go by because this is exactly what is happening in so many companies that are making so many promises. And then they essentially go and cheat on their partner. And it's very, very difficult in my experience to control that because you may have, it doesn't really matter if your sales force is 10 people strong or 100 people strong. It's very difficult to control every single person unless you want to go into an extreme micromanagement position. That's certainly not something that you know, successful companies would be doing, I think. Okay. And the third question? Yeah. So the third question is, why is this partner that you've recruited for me, why are they not jumping up and down to sell my software for me? Why do we still need to do stuff for them? Which I love that question as well, because very often people who don't work as closely with a channel, they seem to assume that partners out there are just working for whatever vendor you're working with to just essentially dedicate their lives to them and, uh, and just be their partner and sell their software. And unfortunately, the real, I mean, I would love that, but the reality is that there are far more vendors and far more offerings out there than there are great partners that can bring all of those things and especially the relationships with the clients to the table. And yeah, so it is definitely, again, it's the relationship metaphor. It's give and get. You have to be able to bring something to the table. You have to be able to understand what kind of business goals does the partner have and how can I help the partner achieve those business goals whilst also achieving my goals. Only then it's going to work. It's, there's no other way to do this. Excellent. And the fourth question? The fourth question would be, how can we get sellers and partners and the channel guys to work together successfully? And that's probably also the, the biggest question. And <laughs> there's a lot about understanding and there's even more about relationships again. You know, I find it so important that particularly the bigger the partner and the more explanatory sales that you're making so I keep, keep saying software because that's just my background, but I'm guessing it would work exactly the same whether you buy toothpaste or, or software. If you want to have really good, successful relationship at all levels, you have to involve all levels, which means that sellers need to build relationships with salespeople at the partners. The channel guys do the relationship bit. The CEOs need to speak together. So it really needs to be at all levels to be truly aligned and successful. So to summarize what I'm hearing from you, first of all, you need to be very partner-centric, which means that you have to put the partner before yourself. You have to understand what they are trying to achieve and align yourself with their goals. Because if you don't, then you are one of many and they will find a way to drop you very quickly. And after the investment of 
recruiting them, training them, onboarding them, that's a crashing waste. Partners are in business for their reasons, not your reasons. And unless you're Oracle or HP, you probably can't get away with being as arrogant as many vendors have been historically mm-hmm. and need to engage at every level throughout their organization with people from your organization at peer-to-peer level. And if you don't do that, then things will slip through the, uh, the gaps. You also need to make sure that your salespeople recognize that partners bring something to the table that you cannot because partners generally have a much closer relationship with the end customer than the vendor does. And they know the ins and outs. They're probably aware of their strategy, their vision, the direction they're trying to take the business. And if they're any good, they will also have uh, relationships throughout the organization and they can massively accelerate your sales, but also open doors that you probably otherwise couldn't as a vendor. Is that a fair summary? That's a very fair summary. And I would add to that, if you're unsure of how your partner feels about you or the level of commitment that a partner may be willing to bring to the table, and you're not quite sure what questions to ask, just think about what kind of questions would I like to be asked by my spouse? So going back to the whole marriage thing, it's, <laughs> you can almost translate in, in, in it. In many cases, one. you probably don't want to be asked questions by your spouse. Poss- possibly <laughs> not. No, possibly not. Well, no, you know, you well it, it depends how well you did in the initial qualification process of your spouse, I'd say. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell me this, because you, you've worked both sides in terms of resellers and distribution and also vendor side. What is it that really pisses partners off about vendors? You've mentioned going behind their back and stealing their accounts. That's an obvious one. What else? That's a good one. So uh, just to, to qualify that or to clarify that, so I have not actually worked on the other side of the table at a distributor or at a reseller, but I have certainly worked on you know, very closely with, with all of those different partners throughout my career. And in my experience, certainly the most stick that we've ever gotten at any vendor would have been, you make promises and then you don't keep them. And it doesn't really matter if it is about, if it is about a f- fantastic new program that you're going to be launching or discounts, but discounts is a big one. So very often vendors tend to say, oh, you know, you, you're going to get 30% flat on whatever, if you do X, Y, Z, if you qualify as, a, as an advanced partner, whatever they may be called. And then when it comes to it, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but okay, but we have to cut into that because of X, Y, Z special situation, fill in the blanks, whatever the salespeople would like to make up in that scenario. So that if it happens repeatedly and if there's no good reason for it, because there can be very good reasons for it, but if it happens repeatedly and if the exception becomes the norm, that really pisses partners off. And understandably so, because they have invested in building their business via your business. And now all of a sudden they can't take the numbers that they're calculating with at face value anymore. They don't know what they can trust. Right. So I think what you've just hinted at, and certainly we wrote that 
into making channel sales work mm-hmm. is that you need to agree up front very clearly in the prenuptial agreement exactly what the terms are of engagement, the commercials, and what's acceptable and not acceptable. And yes. you need to stick to your promises because you're known by the promises you keep, not the ones that you make. CFOs and executives playing fast and loose with the financial side of deals are likely to very quickly drive your partners to the competition or at the very best you can hope for is they'll just go dark on you and stop bothering to introduce you anywhere. So all that work up front will be wasted. Now, again, I suspect if we look at the mistakes that a lot of uh, vendors make is they have a tendency to go out on, on the basis that more is better rather than better is better. And they go out and recruit a land army. I know it's psychotic. You've been very selective. Why have you chosen to go down that route of developing a special forces unit of partners instead of the land army? Yes. Excellent question. So when I came on board about two years ago, one of the reasons why I was hired or why why, uh, Psychotic created this position of a, of a channel leader um, for the international team was because, um, and I've just listened to actually to, to the, uh, to the Jim Legg podcast, who's our CEO. And um, he talks about this incredible, crazy growth path that we've been on and to give listeners some perspective. So in 2016, I think there were zero employees or one employee potentially in the international team. And uh, now four years later, we're 150. So it's been an incredible growth path. And it's been very much the same for the channel landscape. So what's been very interesting when I came on board, in the nicest way possible, what I found in terms of channel landscape was the Wild West. So every region was kind of doing their own thing. And that worked very well up until that point. But there was no standardization of the partner experience, of partner processes, of how we do things across the board and so on. And I think... That's okay to a degree because you will always have things that don't work in one region as as well as they do in other regions. So it's important to take that into consideration. But one thing that we found across the board was basically that we said, come on in all the partners who possibly want to do business with us. We would like to work with you and just give it a shot. And that's something that's very normal with companies and vendors in the early stages of setting up a channel. Because you're also going through that process of understanding, like, who's the right marriage partner for me? Who do I actually want to spend time with? And who can I add value to as well? So it's important to have that stage as well, I believe. But then when I came in, we identified very quickly who's the right partner for us. And then worked, actually worked together with you and your fantastic book, Making Channel Sales Work. I'm going to plug that here. It's the best book on channels that I have read so far. I've read probably all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So I can highly recommend this book. And there's actually another section of the book that I would like to touch on in a second, but I've written it down so I won't forget. But back to the, uh, the special forces team. So a couple of reasons why that is really important. Reason number one is if a partner understands that he is one of very few, they're much likely, uh, sorry, much more likely to invest in you. And invest is not just in marketing campaigns and driving demand, but it really is when you've got a solution that you're trying to sell, 
it really is not just about that generating leads. Generating leads is great, but ideally you want to have a partner that's a true partner, which means they also have the, the pre-sales and the technical expertise. They're essentially an extension of your sales force. So you want to be in a situation where your salespeople are saying, actually, I don't need to use our own internal resources because partner XYZ's people are great. You know, I can utilize them. So it's, it's easy on your own internal resources if you're being able to, to build that up, but that only works if you can essentially feed that partner because every partnership is a two-way street, meaning that if they are bringing you opportunities and projects and leads, then you should be doing the same. You know, it's, it's all about being successful together. So yeah, so there's, there's really that element. That's the key element here. One of the observations that we made when we were researching the book was just how critical it was that you identify upfront what a good partner looks like, what you want them to help you to achieve and understand what they want to achieve so that you can remind one another of why you're doing this. And that then enables you to focus your attention, your resource, your investment where it matters the most. But so often where organizations build this land army, what they never bother to do is analyze where the profitable revenue comes from. And without exception, I've found that 2 to 4% of the partners generate 40 to 60% of the revenue. Now, when you think about what that implies in terms of wasted effort, in terms of recruitment, onboarding, training, let's imagine some of them did a bit of coaching, which almost never happens. Then the accountability piece, the amount of a wasted pipeline, the marketing spend, it's an act of crazy to not be really clear up front and unambiguous about what your ideal partner looks like and identify how both sides will hold each other to account to make sure that you're making progress. Because partners can be defined best by organizations or individuals that help each other get better. And if you don't have that accountability agreed up front, then when it comes to holding one another to account, then there's a genuine risk that one side or both will get defensive because their egos will get pricked. So how do you manage to stifle that uh, so that you have adult-to-adult conversations in your accountability calls? Yes, I think that's the ongoing process, always ongoing. And one part that needs to be very ongoing is to be honest about what does the right partner look like? So that's a process that we look at probably on a quarterly basis because two and a half years ago, the right partner probably, not probably, was a very different kind of partner that we're working with today. And that is just because you've got to look at, again, it depends on the company and sort of the growth path that you're on. But Tychotic has been on this extreme hyper growth path that meant that the company has changed we're now very much in the enterprise space and therefore the partners that are right for us today are different partners that would have been right for us yesterday. That doesn't mean that we stop loving them. It just means that we need to be careful in terms of how we engage with them. And what I mean by that is, you know, we 
this is, I also find almost universal across channel businesses in the world. The channel business is not necessarily blessed with an abundance of resource. So you've got to be very, very careful where you spend your time. Therefore, what we've done, what we're creating ongoingly is two different approaches. One where we look at um, what we call internal MLE named partners. So very much the same processes in terms of named accounts. So named partners, they're the ones that uh, we're hoping to marry and, uh, and the ones that we're, we're already married to. But even those conversations, and this leads back to your original question, you've got to keep each other accountable and say, hey, this is the target that we agreed to get to. And what we tend to do is we, we set a joint target. And already during that target setting process, if you're saying you want to reach 200K and the partner saying, mm, I'm thinking more like 50, then that's a massive discrepancy. So you've got to ask yourself, okay, if, if that's the commitment that you're willing to bring, then maybe you're going to be in the, I love you, but maybe only once a month uh, kind of bucket, rather than in the, in the full-on committed named partner bucket. So there's definitely that. And the other aspect that's very important is to break down targets. So if you've got whatever your targets, your, your ideal number may be for, for your named partner, but you need to look at what does the revenue translate to in terms of your average order value? It may be worth looking at the average order value for that particular partner. If you've been working with them for a long time, you have a track record. If you don't have that, look at what is the average order value on what we would do uh, on, on channel deals. So opportunities that have been brought to you via a channel partner in that particular region, because again, the number will differ region by region. So it's important to regionalize that and then to really break that down so that the partner understands if I want to have a target and reach that of 500K, that means I need to bring in 10 deals, which means that I need to generate, I don't know, 50 deal registrations or whatever the magic numbers would be in your case, so that everyone has a very good understanding of what commitment are we actually needing to bring in here and what does that then mean in terms of activities. So how are we going to achieve those smaller and smaller numbers? So how are we going to generate those leads? And then to have continued coaching sessions and discussions around how can we improve the conversion rates, not just from lead to opportunity, but also from opportunity to close, and then ideally the upsell rates and so on. So that's really the ideal process that you want to go through. And it needs to be a very open and honest conversation with those partners and with the right people at those partners at the same time. So it sounds to me like your channel managers and you are spending a good deal of your time coaching your partners on how to sell, even though they may be representing competitors and they may use that skill to sell someone else's products. How do you square that up with your own leadership and management team? That's an interesting question. So yes, so we are certainly spending a lot of time coaching them and making sure that we reach our goals. I would say if we find, and there has actually been um, a case not that long ago where we've had the suspicion that actually this particular partner is bringing in competitive solutions into deals that we've started out with together. 
then I think, again, that's that's very important to bring that up, first of all, with a partner and say, hey, you know, well, what the hell are you doing? And again, it may be a situation that the leadership team isn't even aware of it, but that it's just one particular salesperson that has a buddy at that other company that they want to help. And that's what they're doing, which is against the strategy of, of the overall company. And that's something that then can be addressed. And in terms of... Uh, of the own leadership management team, well, you know, you could also ask the the other question or the question the other way around. What is keeping all of the other competitors or any other company that is having a channel? Essentially, we all need to be doing the same. So by teaching salespeople and a partner how to sell better, higher, and so on and so forth, you are investing in that person. But I believe you're also investing in that personal relationship and if you've got that personal relationship, chances are they're not going to be selling a competitor, but they are going to want to be successful with you. I see what you're saying. I, I think in a space like security, you could be one of 20 vendors that sure. they're selling into a particular end user client. Now, what you don't necessarily want, uh, like you know, in the example you cited, where you've initiated an opportunity and mm-hmm. then they're bringing a competitor in, that's poor form. But I think it's really important to understand that the more successful you make your partners, the more likely they are to carry you along with them. And there is a risk that if you train them how to sell your stuff effectively, they can use those skills elsewhere. But I think that's a, a, a calculated risk. That's sure. Worth Taking, because if you help your partners be more effective at selling, first of all, they will burn through fewer leads wastefully, and the sales cycles will be shorter, and you'll have greater visibility and predictability in your pipeline. Now, if your partners aren't playing fairly, then you need to upfront have agreed how you escalate and this is where your upfront contract really comes into its own. I think it's also very important to understand also where the leading indicators are in your pipeline and to make sure that you're focused on those kind of behaviors and that you focus on driving forward the middle of the funnel. Because I I know in Phycotic, you guys are really hot on pipeline hygiene. And One of the things that I've seen very often in many tech vendors, and partially this is a byproduct of how CRM systems are set up, which is at the front end, we're driving pipeline. The first question that happens, uh, that comes up when you pop it into the CRM is what's the close date? And so the focus goes on to closing instead of nurturing the opportunity and qualifying it properly. And as a result, there can be an unholy rush to the close, which often will backfire. So again, how do you make sure that your partners are doing a thorough qualification and they're always looking to advance or get out to make sure that that middle of the funnel is absolutely pristine? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So definitely sales enablement and coaching is is a key part of that. But then once we've got uh, these opportunities in our pipeline, what we are doing now is that um, the my team, so the channel team and the sales team and the, the regional leadership, 
and then again the, the the regional channel leadership, we have additional forecast calls sort of internally to vet out where are we? Is anyone having happy years? Is what we can see in the CRM is is that actually real? Is that is that good stuff, or are there key elements that are missing or should be in there, or is someone is you know, very uh, confident in their ability to remember 20 meetings and just not putting it in there. And what we found is that by doing this and introducing this process, we do catch things that do not belong in there, but we also figure out things that should be in there, but aren't in there. So it's, it's really all about communication. But like you've also said, it is very much about setting expectations and it is ideally about agreeing what kind of sales process are we actually using. And this is particularly key when you're working with a partner on opportunities that the partner has brought to the table. And ideally, before you start engaging, you agree on very simple things like who's actually leading this deal who's talking to the customer, who's running the POC, who, who's going to be doing what essentially. My dream scenario is always document it all. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of documenting as much as possible. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's the local government bureaucracy they did it. There you go. It's, uh, it's <laughs> going to have some sort of effect. So, and I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm very much alone with my love for PowerPoints and documenting what I can. But um, yeah, so I advocate document whatever you can because then if halfway through the project or really whatever whatever escalation point may come up, you've got something like an upfront contract that you can go back to and say, something has gone wrong. Let's have a look. What did we agree on in the beginning? And where did we go wrong? So that we can get back on track and uh, that we can hold each other accountable. I find that very, very important, uh, not just for the pipeline health, but you know, you could say for the overall health of the relationship. I think you've touched on a couple of really important points here, which are worth extrapolating. The first one is that if you understand what's really going on in your pipeline, then as a channel manager, you can coach your partners and you can help them to uh, stop stuff falling through the gaps or to get out early before you end up sinking a load of resource after deals you can't or shouldn't win. The second thing that you've touched on is the lesson capture and how important that is. Because if you're not learning and you're not growing, and uh, if you're not learning and growing, then basically you're dying. And you know, th- th- this is a tough uh, market that you operate in. It's a tough economy that we're in at the moment. And it's really important that we don't squander resources or opportunities through lack of attention and uh, poor attention to detail. The details do matter. Uh, It doesn't mean that you have to be a micromanager, but it absolutely does mean that you need to know what's true and what isn't. And you need to speak up early and not let these things fester. If there is a problem, then confront it. And uh, if you've agreed right at the outset of your partner relationship what the process for escalation looks like, what the process for accountability is, then it can't come as a surprise And you can have adult-to-adult conversations instead of you going all critical parent on them and then being defensive child. Or uh, you end up in a spat over nothing because it's so important that you are totally transparent with your partners. I think one of the other mistakes I've seen occur far too often is that there's this sort of game of cloak and dagger, smoke and mirrors that goes on. 
which only fosters distrust. So let's move on a little bit. What are the three most important questions that people don't ask, but they should around the channel? The first one we've already touched upon, which is why does this partner want to work with us? So what is the partner's goals? What is the partner trying to achieve by working with us? So do we do we plug a hole in their portfolio? Are we going to be as part of their overall strategy in their top three vendors, which is you know ideally, of course, where you want to be. But then there's a big difference if you're talking to a security boutique partner or a, a global system integrator. You still want to be in the top three, but there are different paths and, uh, and time that it takes um, to get there. So that's a really big question because um, and, um, I think you, you cited a few times in your book, the partners and really any person, they're only going to do what's good for them, what is going to help their goals, not your goals. They don't really care about your goals. They don't really care about you having to reach X amount of number this quarter. That's not what they care about. So you need to find out what is motivating them. And then derivative of that question (laughs) that people don't really ask is, how are your salespeople getting paid? And that's a very important question to understand for a partner because then you know how to incentivize them and how to bring focus to your solutions rather than a different um, partner solutions. If we look at understanding how a partner's salespeople are compensated, then we can align ourselves to drive the behaviors that we want. Mm -hmm. Far too often what I see is vendors going in with this expectation that people are motivated by money, which to an extent, yes, I mean, the money is important, but also their engineers want to work on interesting, up-to-date technical projects. Their managers want to expand their business. They want to grow those relationships. They want to protect the accounts that they have. And if you don't take that bigger picture perspective and you're too transactional, then you lose a lot of that. And so I think one of the most important lessons, certainly from when you and I worked together, was really looking at that bigger picture. How can we align ourselves strategically with our partners? And what's the long game that we're playing rather than just looking at transaction after transaction? Because what that tends to lead to if you're too transactional, and well, first of all, is that you end up Um, with the customer feeling slightly abused. And there is a temptation, which I've seen happen so often, to uh, have these fireside sales at the end of the quarter or at the end of the year. Now, if you haven't aligned yourself with the the partner's long-term ambitions and you haven't emphasized how important it is that pipeline is their number one objective, if you have a full pipeline, then you have choice. And you never have to discount uh, in order to try and squeeze something over the line. Because more often than not, that will backfire. Because the customer won't be ready to buy, but they will then be expecting that discount that you offered them in the period when they do buy. So you end up creating a rod for your own back. So I think my question here is, how do you make sure that your partners get away from that traditional IT rush to the end of the quarter, do anything to get the deal over the line and make sure that they're really focused on the front end of filling up the pipeline so that they're never under that pressure. Yeah, so I think um, it 
really goes back to qualification again. So get in early into deals and get out early. So don't be afraid to go for the no. That will save you from kind of having to push and pull and and then be able to spend more time on deals that are really real. So that's very key. Communication again, I think it's very important. So you can't, I wouldn't say it's just the partner uh, where you see that behavior. It is always also driven from the vendor. So you've got to have that alignment and you've got to have that very clear understanding that you also just touched upon around customer satisfaction. So customer satisfaction is key. And it's also one of the things that Psychotics um, is very, very passionate about that customer success is key. So the sale does not stop just because the order is closed in the system. Um, the sale does not stop that. So th- there always has to be that post-sale process taken into consideration as well, which is then the part that is very important, obviously to us as the vendor, but also to the partner, if it's the right kind of partner, because they don't want to burn their relationships. So a combination of those factors is um, is helping. And of course, you know you need to make sure that once you do have your, your number target agreed and have broken that down waterfall style, um, you do need to make sure that the wonderful plan that you've just created is actually executed upon. Because if you do have enough leads and opportunities in the pipeline, you don't really have to start rushing at the end of the quarter and have to go completely crazy to close whatever you can get. Well, this then comes back to the, you know, the stick that I kept beating which is around habit. What Mm -hmm. what are the critical habits of great channel managers? Yeah, I love that. I love habits and routines and consistency and execution. All those things that sound really, really boring are so important, not just for channel sales managers, but also for anyone who who is results-driven and needs to do that. So I think for a channel sales manager... What's very key is sort of the the planning habit. Ideally, at the beginning of the year, they're going to sit down and say, okay, this is my target. How am I going to get that? Which partners are going to be involved in getting me there? What kind of activities are involved? And to really break it down, like I've already described a couple of times. So planning is very important, but execution is even more important. Even if you execute 60% of a fantastic plan, you know, that at least you've got 60% executed, but typically not just for channel uh, management, very important, but really for, you know, for, all, for anyone who's got a target, break it down, plan and execute. And execution is so much more important, if you will, than the planning part, because even if you've got the most beautiful plan, it doesn't really get you anywhere unless you've got a consistent execution habit. So daily execution in key areas. Going back to channel sales management is really about key partner contact execution on plans individually with partners and also my beloved documenting habit, Salesforce in our case, upkeep or their CRM upkeep. Because, And I find this really interestingly enough, it's quite normal that you're being asked to update opportunities, but it's just as important to keep the accounts that we keep for partners updated on your meeting notes and so on and so forth. Because, um, you know, God forbid you're going to be hit by a car or so, and then you're out of the business for six months. Well, who's going to pick up on those relationships if you have not documented what you agreed, those upfront contracts, the rights and all of that. So that's very important. Then um, priority management, absolute key. So 
so many people, including myself. I remember when, uh, Marcus, when you and I met, I was, um, I was in a bit of a mess mentally more than anything else, because I just felt so overwhelmed by this flood of emails coming in and all of those competing priorities. And I know so many people who are working 16, 20 hour days, but their output is not aligned to that at all. So it's really about where do you spend your energy? Where do you spend your time? Um, There's always enough time. It just depends on, you know, the priorities that you've got. So that's really key. And then Something that's outside of specifically channel sales management, but that I find more and more important is to have some sort of focusing habit. So that could be the classic would be meditation or yoga or some other mindfulness activity that really trains the mind to focus for extended periods of times while it's kind of blocking out the inner chatter because that is something that will really make you productive. There are so many people who kind of have all of those notifications pop up. And I think there was some research done that every single time you allow a distraction to come up, it then takes you seven minutes or so to refocus on what you've been doing. And then, you know, it's no surprise that you kind of end up working 16 hour days. I know it wasn't for me because that used to maybe be me. And I tell you, it certainly didn't make me very happy. So... You, you've yeah. touched on a number of really important uh, habits there. But one thing I'd like to pick up on, Dave Brock did some research and he found that the average time in front of the customer was between 12 and 21% of any working day for a direct salesperson. And there's some other research which suggests that salespeople are only between 25 and 35% highly productive in any given working day. Now, if you extrapolate that data, that suggests that salespeople are only in front of the customer and highly productive for between 3 and 7.35% of any given working day. Now, if you do what Silke has suggested, which is you plan, you prioritize, you say no to stuff that is not that important, you limit your distractions because not only does it take seven minutes to recover your concentration, but then the time taken out to do whatever the distraction is dragging you into could easily mean that you're losing three, four, five, six, seven hours in the day, which is why you have to work stupid long hours and you're not terribly productive. So learning how to say no gracefully to stuff is really important. Learning how to prioritize. And and interestingly enough, up until the 1830s in the English language, priority was only a singular word. And then the Industrial Revolution came around and we started multitasking. And then priorities became priorities. And as a result, there is an old Confucian proverb which says, man who ride two horses end up with very sore flesh. And the, the problem is that if you're being pulled from pillar to post without focusing specific, committed, guided time to those actions and activities that matter the most, then chances are, you'll find that you do nothing well. And that's the very definition of multitasking, doing two things badly. And what's really important to understand is how the brain actually works. The brain doesn't actually multitask. It's single tasks in serial succession. So it focuses on task A, then task B, then task A, then task B. Now, if you just dedicate the time to finishing task A, and then you move on to task B, 
then you're far more likely to do a good job and get it done in a fraction of the time. So tell me, what are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? So in terms of what I'm struggling with, I would say, and again, something that I've kind of touched upon already today, the number one struggle I would say of anyone in my position would always be, how do you make sellers that have no previous channel experience or no positive channel experience? That's also very possible. How do you get them to appreciate the channel and vice versa and get them engaged? I've talked about this before. So it's, you know, it is this constant effort that requires a lot of communication, a lot of education, a lot of bringing people together, fostering understanding, building those relationships. And what I find is in the regions where we see this working really, really well, it needs not just me to to continue to sing the gospel around this, but it needs a regional leader who's got that, that channel understanding and the channel mentality and that sees the advantages that we can have with a very successful channel. And it's then the regional leader who's also driving the sellers and, uh, and not just the sellers, but everyone who's sort of based in that region to engage with the, the partner people and, uh, and everyone that's around there so that it truly is one strategy. Because I think when it comes to channel, channel is one part of a big regional strategy. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm the leader for EMEA APEC, so I care about all of the different regions. And I also have that way of kind of comparing them to each other. And um, I can see it, it works the best where the leader is really taking ownership from their point of view also on, okay, what is our regional strategy and which part does marketing play? Which part does the direct sales team or the direct touch team play? Which part does the channel team play? And how do we bring all of them together? So it's not a, a one-person effort. It really, for channel to work very successfully, everyone kind of needs to be on board. So that's... Do you have uh, an operating rhythm master sheet that tells you what activities you need to do, uh, how frequently, with whom, what the intent is, and so on? Uh, It's something of that sort. So we're actually um, establishing something like that at the moment. What we're looking at is, um, we call it the contact matrix, where you essentially build up, okay, this is named partner A. This is how they are structured. Who do we map? towards these people at the partner side from our regional internal side and how often, like what you've just said, how often do they need to talk about X, Y, Z? So I think it is a similar thing to what you've just described. So yes, that is absolutely something that we're currently putting into place to ensure that whether I'm here or not, that that can still continue to happen. I look at the conversation that I had with Tom Shodorf who took Splunk from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And uh, on one page, he has uh, his operating rhythm. And um, so it's uh, broken down into people development, into revenue, and into field communication. And each of those has different activities. So he knows what the activity is, what the action that needs to be taken, how frequently what the mechanism is and what the intended outcome is. And that might be something that's worth exploring. Tell me this then, have you ever been blindsided? Yes, definitely. So, um, you know, I have, and 
I'm sure I will continue to be blindsided. And I, I, I'm pretty sure anyone who, who answers no to that question is lying. Or <laughs> well, they're not um, trying hard enough. Or they just don't know. Or their ego is too big. Could also be. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say the for me personally, the overarching theme for many years has certainly been I quite like harmony. I'm not a massive person for conflict, which is ironic seeing the role that I'm in. So for me, my normal operating system would be, how can I make everyone happy? How can I please everyone? And that's difficult in this position because there's always going to be someone not as happy as the other person because this in, in a channel position, you are always as leader engaged with all of the different pieces of the business, whether that is the operations side of the business, infrastructure, IT, HR, pre-sales, marketing, sales, it's everyone that you kind of have to please. And that's a very difficult task for one person to achieve. So That sounds like herding cats. It feels like herding cats, Marcus. Yes. So I, I, <laughs> I had to learn a few lessons the hard way to understand that actually the only thing I'm going to achieve by trying to please everyone is to destroy my mental sanity. And I need to move on to make the right decisions strategically and get comfortable with being really uncomfortable and having those conflicts and having those situations where you have to simply stand your ground doing what you believe is best for the company. And what's best for the company in my area, may not be perceived as the best thing in one particular region, in one particular section. So by this, I would say, personality trait of having this operating system of wanting to please everyone all the time, sometimes you don't catch that as soon as you get into that situation, then it's pretty easy to be blindsided by someone just throwing something at you and you think, oh, okay, is, is that my fault? It's probably my fault because why would it be the other person's fault? So what I've really learned for, for me and my personal personality type is to take a couple of steps, steps back, say, hmm, I'm going to get back to you on that and to think it through and then to make a decision and get into the conflict if need to be. It's really interesting. I, I, I'm thinking about the makeup of the ideal channel chief. So this is your opportunity to blush because I think what the best channel chiefs look like are uh, they have strong business and financial acumen. They're highly collaborative. They are very focused on executing for results and they're effective in leadership uh, roles. They're good planners. They're personally accountable and highly adaptable. They're not afraid to confront conflict situations when required. They spend a good deal of their time collaborating, coaching, communicating with influence. They delegate well. They direct others with clarity. They are clear about what the goals are and work on individual plans on how to get there. They're good at solving problems. They're very process-orientated. They read the situation well, and they have a high degree of self-awareness. And they can flip from strategic thinking to tactical expediency. They have to have a high tolerance for stress. They know how to manage their time well, and they spend their time making sure that other people get their needs met. And I think you've encompassed that beautifully in this conversation. 
that those are the qualities that make for a fantastic channel chief. And what kind of growth are you experiencing at the moment, if you're allowed to say? So for the international region, and I'll fact check before this goes out, but for the international region, we're looking at um, probably the last few quarters, around 60 to 70% quarter on quarter. 60 to 70% compound quarter by quarter. Because I, I know that you guys have gone from, what, about 10 million to half a, uh, half a billion in five years, which is breathtaking. That has to be among the fastest growth on the planet. The only one that I'm aware of that's faster is UiPath, who I think they've grown to 100,000% in seven years uh, in revenue growth. Now, how do you do that without the wheels coming off? Because to be able to experience that level of growth, you have to have people who are okay with change because the business that you were six months ago probably bears next to no relationship to the business you are today. So how do you recruit for that? And how do you tolerate it when you're stuck in the middle of this effectively just a a maelstrom uh, of change? It's a great question. No, I I think I'll kind of echo what Jim Leck talked about when, when you spoke to him. It's very, very important to recruit people who are very passionate about what they do. I find that's that's really a, a key, um, n- not a key skill, but definitely a, a key characteristic. And everyone at Psychotic, everyone's very passionate about what we are doing. And we are very, very used to changing constantly. So change is kind of part of our makeup because even two quarters ago or a quarter ago, this company was a different company than it is today. And in one quarter, we're going to have different conversations again. So what we have to do in the management team is not only be very comfortable with change, um, which we all are, but we have to communicate well with each other, which we do. So we we get together on a very regular basis. We we make sure that all of us have one-to-one conversations with each other on an ongoing basis. And... um, we don't let harmony get in the way of progress. That's a sort of that's a, that's the Simon as a party uh, who's who's our leader in international. He's it's his tagline for our management team, and it's it works right. It's very open to have uh, very important to have open and honest and sometimes painful conversations with each other to make sure that we as a leadership team are able to change this company you know, and, and to continue to work for the better. And I think that's really the, the key reason. And of course, there are other things like making sure that the infrastructure is right and that the, that the channel landscape, and in my case, adapts with us as a company. But the key factor is the people. It always has been, always will be. So look, we, we've, we need to wrap up now. Um, tell me, if you could go back and whisper into the idiot Silka's ear, age 23, what choice bit of advice would you give her? Um, you own full responsibility for your emotions and your choices and practice that deliberately every day and use that power wisely. And as an extension of that, look very carefully at who you surround yourself with and get rid of all of the people that just take energy from you without giving something back. You know, some people take a lot of energy from you, but they inspire you in return or you get a lesson out of that but there are enough people who or enough situations where that is not happening. And don't mistake having a lot of people around you as being something valuable and, and popular. 
So that's sort of the the main advice I would give myself. Excellent. How can people get hold of you, Silka? So there's obviously uh, silka.errands at psychotic.com, which is my my business address. But we also, and when I say we, it's me and two wonderful colleagues and friends, Martin Behrens and Andrew McAllister. We actually have our own podcast, which with Marcus Karaki is going to come out probably a week after this one comes out, which is called The Mental Manager, where we talk about uh, mental health specifically to management, which still, unfortunately, up to today is a stigma. And uh, you, know, you see far too many people working crazy hours and then breaking down at some point without really being able to talk about it. So we've made a podcast around that. And um, we've got an Instagram account. And I can tell you, Instagram, it's a teenager's game. I'm no good at it, but I'm trying. So we've got, you can follow us on Instagram, the underscore mental underscore manager, and find that podcast on all of your favorite platforms, I guess. Spotify, iTunes, all of those. So Silke, this has genuinely been a pleasure. It's been fascinating catching up with you and seeing the progress that you've made. It's just breathtaking. And you're to be congratulated. It's it's a really impressive journey that you've gone through. If you had one parting bit of advice for someone who was thinking about going into the channel, what would be that one nugget that you would give them? Channel is amazing on many, many levels you're able to bring in a lot of your own personality, a lot of your own creativity. Don't expect Channel to be a nine-to-five job and don't expect to be thanked every five minutes by everyone because that is not what Channel is. You've got to be realistic that there is a lot of adversity almost. And there was this great article from Jay McBain from, uh, from Forrester on LinkedIn the other day where he talked about, you know, a, a, a Channel Chief... Everyone tends to think, you know, all you do is you go out to parties, you hang out with partners, you go drink coffee and go golfing. That is not what channel is. So before you get into it, be very careful what your expectations are. But if you're a relationship person, if that is really what is driving you, and if if that's, you know, what you want to spend your life doing, and also if you want to have a, a fantastic industry to work with. And, you know, of course, there's lots of different channels. But in my case, um, I was lucky enough to end up in uh, IT security software, which is a fantastic industry uh, with a lot of potential. And yeah, it's it's a fantastic career that I can only recommend. Silke Ahrens, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation and found it useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please email me at marcuscauke at me.com or mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.